Good morning. It was Mark Heimberger, y'all. Uh, lead pastor, superhero, personal friend of mine. I'm going to go get an autograph afterwards. We're in uh, week four of a series that uh, we called Analog, and we're looking at the early church right after Pentecost. Uh, 3,000 men come to Christ in a single day, and then the church is dealing with the, the actual formation of the church. Like, what, is it that, what are the things that we're going to then build this church on? What does church do? Why, why do we meet together? What are, what are the activities that we're actually supposed to be participating in as part of a church? And so now for three weeks, we've looked at the same set of verses, Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 through 40. Uh, seven or so, and, and we're just we just looked over and over again, really. At what what are the things that the church spent their time on as the church was formed? Because, and this is our assertion this time, this whole time through this series, we'd probably better at least do those things. So, regardless of how churches look different and how they uh, may stylistically do different things or use different methods, all of that is is fine inside the body of Christ. But you had better get the foundational things right. So what is it that the early church did? What did where did they set their priorities? How did they determine their activities? And where they spent their energy? And so we saw three things over the course of the last three weeks. I'll just remind you of those three things. The first thing that we saw is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And what that means is they, they put a high priority on gathering together, then it was in the temple, uh, on a specific day of the week as the body, and encouraging one another, being involved in each other's lives, and being engaged and expectant that studying the word of God was going to lead to transformation. And so our application from that was that, that that's kind of a big deal in the Bible. It should kind of be a big deal to us. And yet in American church, actually, the averages have gone the opposite direction. We've, we hold less and less and less and less value for gathering together on Sunday mornings. And it seems like more and more we misunderstand why we do it. But it was a big deal. And so we talked about what does it look like to be engaged in a Sunday morning service? What does it look like to be expectant that God's going to come in and he's going to move and his spirit is going to pour out over his people and we'll begin to actually see him changing lives in our midst and why that was so important. That was week one. Week two, we looked at the kitchen table. All week long, the, the believers would gather together in homes, breaking bread together, participating in the Lord's Supper eating meals together, being involved in each other's lives. And the reason that doing that in someone's home was kind of a big deal, beyond the fact that a lot of them were poor and had nowhere else to go, is that when you open up your home, you're living vulnerably in front of other people. You're inviting them into your life because we do our best probably to clean up our houses. But I mean, once you're inside the house, there were people uh, in my house this week and my kitchen table has had a lot of arts and crafts projects done on it over the years. And so there's like no getting the glitter off my table. <laughs> like it will never come off. There's glitter, there's glue, there's sparkles. I have three daughters, this is just the way I live. Everything has glitter somewhere in my house. <laughs> when we invite people into our lives, when we open up our lives, when we begin to live vulnerably, then and only then really do we begin to have intimate Christian fellowship. It's one thing to fake it for a few minutes on a Sunday morning. It's a whole other thing to invite people intimate into our lives to see our mess and walk alongside us through the Christian life. And that's what they did. This is what they were doing. And then we looked last week at this idea of living a generous life that um, one of the ways that we fight greed and we're all greedy is we fight greed by giving our stuff away. We give our time away, we give our energy away, we give, we give to other people. We give not only out of our excess, we give out of what we have and we share with others. And they're just giving everything away in the New Testament. They are selling property and uh, helping others and inviting people into their homes. And, and there was, it says there was no need because they were sharing so well. And it didn't take a government program. Wild. They're compelled by the love of Christ and what the Holy Spirit's doing to live generous lives. So three things. Today we're going to talk about impact, and we do a little bit of the opposite thing of what we've done. So what we've done is spent three weeks on about six verses. Today we're going to spend one sermon on two chapters. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at what happened when the early church did these things. So when they devoted their heart, okay, so they didn't just check boxes, 
when they devoted their heart to seeking God through these three things, gathering together, devoting themselves to the word of God and to the apostles' teaching, doing life together and living generous lives, there is an impact that is undeniable in the Bible. And we're going to look at the next couple chapters after this, and we're going to look at the impact there in the New Testament. But then I'm going to talk to you about throughout history, when the church does this, we see impact like this. And I don't want you to miss that it's not simply that it's good for us to live this way. It's not just that it, that it leads to contentment and satisfaction that we live this way. There is an impact that it becomes undeniable when God's people are on God's mission and seeking God with their hearts. You following? Yes. Okay. Someone's following. It's good. It's good to know. We have uh, four core values in our church's value statement. Um, we, we're about this thing we call gospel culture. And, and we believe that it, it, it's comprised of four values. And you can read about that. We have little handouts. And we spent some time earlier in this year talking about it. Um, but the fourth value is impact. And it says this. We want to be known for vulnerably living out the gospel in everyday relationships to make a kingdom impact in our circles of influence, neighborhoods, workplaces, and families. And we're about to read where this comes from, where this value statement comes from. You can see it right in the uh, New Testament, right after the church begins to devote themselves to these things, we're going to see it. All right, here we go. You ready? We're going to be all the way, we're going to do a lot of Bible uh, today. I'm, I'm just going to like skip over some of it and summarize a little bit so that we can make it through because I would be here for a long time trying to read all this and exegizing it. So heavy summary here. Stay with me. In Chapter three, right after we read Acts 2, 42 through 47, we get to chapter three, and Peter and John, we, we get this story where they're going to the temple to pray, and if you didn't know anything about a devout Jew, they would go to the temple three times a day to pray, so there's kind of a schedule to this, so they're on their way to one of the daily prayers things, and they're, and they're walking to the temple, and they get stopped by a beggar. And so what would happen in that culture is if you were a beggar, there's no social programs, there's no welfare, there's no one to help you. Uh, someone would carry you in, in the crowd, so basically in the, in the path of people going to the temple, and your hope is that they would have some sympathy on you because they were on their way to the temple. And I mean, if they're, they're serving God and praying God and honoring God, maybe they'll have some, 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 some pity on you and they'll give you some money. And so there's a lame man, he's been lame since birth for over 40 years, and he's laying there, as they come by, and he's begging them for money. And you get this crazy thing where Peter looks at the guy, and he's like, look at me. Which always it makes, reminds me of the Tom Hanks movie where the guy's like, look at me, I'm the captain now. Right? He's like, look at me. I, I don't know why they put that in there. The Bible's weird. And he says, silver and gold I don't have. Which is actually... Ironic, because at that point, he probably, maybe he wasn't carrying it, but he probably did have it. But that's fine, because there's a point here. He looks at him, and he says, silver and gold I don't have, and he heals him. Guy's been lame for over 40 years, since birth. He's never walked. And he heals him. And I mean, just think about this. How many people have walked by that guy for 40 years? How long has that guy sat there in just absolute Depression like hopelessness. His hope, his good day, is maybe someone takes pity on him and gives him enough money to even eat. That's his life. And, and what's so interesting to me is, it, like, it's kind of not what Peter and John are, are going to the temple for. Like, this is out of their way. They have an appointment. They're actually supposed to be there on time. They have something they're doing. They have a mission from God. This is spreading the gospel. They're going to the temple to help do some of that. Why waste their time with a beggar? But Peter has compassion on him. He has compassion on him. He, he doesn't let that, the schedule kind of get to him and, and, and be like, oh, I got to go, man. I don't have time for you. None of us have ever done that. So he has compassion. Pascal says this. this. is a quote from a church father. He says, do little things as if they were great because of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in thee. And do great things as if they were little and easy because of his omnipotence. So he heals the man. He heals this, this lame man who's in front of the temple who's been 
lame since birth. And, and the guy is, is just overjoyed, right? If you're reading the story, the guy leaps up and he starts dancing around and he's jumping around and he's, he can't believe it, right? He's never walked. Now he's, he's, he's not just walking. He's like, he's running around and jumping and acting the fool and he can't believe it. And he's overjoyed because, you know, I mean, like if Lieutenant Dan got his legs back, he'd be happy too. I mean, this is unbelievable. This has never been a hope of this man. He's never been, he never hoped to be healed. He just hopes to be, not starve. Just a side note, you know, like, like, that is, that's how I think we were intended to feel about Jesus. Like, just can't get enough, can't, can't get over it. The, the, the whole idea of like, mopey Christians is just weird to me. You know what I mean? Like Eeyore Christians. Well, I guess I'm going to go to church today. <laughs> it's just not in here. Like again and again, what you see is people just overjoyed because when you really realize what Jesus has done for you, you can, you're jumping around and acting like an idiot. Some people are like, that's too performative. They're putting on a performance. Maybe they're just happy, Karen. I owe Karen like a dollar now. Okay. <laughs> so what's interesting about him healing this man is that he actually fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah kind of unknowingly, right? He's just following the spirit. He sees this guy. The Holy Spirit prompts him to do this. He heals a man, which is amazing. Isaiah 35, 6 talks about what happens after the Messiah comes, and it says this, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so here we have another prophecy fulfilled after the coming of Jesus where he unwittingly, just out of compassion, heals this man. And now this guy's jumping around and leaping around and it's all chronicled in history and a thousand plus year old prophecy has been fulfilled. And here's what it's gonna lead to. It's gonna lead to him getting an opportunity to preach the gospel. Now what's crazy about this is he was going to the temple and, and his whole mission is to preach the gospel, but he has no opportunity to preach the gospel until he has compassion on this man. And then people are all coming over like, uh, that guy can't walk, what is, how can he dance? And they start listening. And so he preaches a sermon. And unlike his sermon at Pentecost, which is a little sketchy, his, his sermon here is amazing. And he just starts preaching the gospel and people are listening. And, and I would even tell you that I'm not sure he really knows exactly what he's saying. Like you can tell that the Holy Spirit has filled Peter and he's just talking because he says some stuff. At one point in verse 15, uh, this is Acts 3, 15, he says, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. That's like Peter has no chill, right? I mean, this just, you killed the author of life. Verse 19, he says this. He says, turn from your sins to God. Turn from your sins to Jesus. That is the gospel, right? That, that hard tension that it's not just that Jesus comes and finds me where I'm at. It's that when I turn to Jesus, I turn from sin because they're opposite directions. So this weird Americanized evangelical thing where you like, you can keep all of your sin and you can keep Jesus doesn't ever occur in the Bible. They're mutually exclusive. We turn to Jesus because we realize there's a value in Jesus that's so much more than any of the things that I might spend my energy on. And so I turn from sin to Jesus. It's a choice. You get to verse 26 and it says this, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Is this misconception that uh, we see in churches and have seen historically through the Christian church at different seasons and eras that God wants to make you holy and in, in, in making you holy, he's like removing all of your happiness. And it's like the, the, the idea that, that the walking away from your sin is somehow uh, gonna make you less happy. And that, that's such a misconception because that's not even what the Bible says. And, and if you've really run after Christ for any period of time, you realize that that's not even the case. God desires to save us from sin because it kills us and we never find true satisfaction. God desires to bless us, 
to bring us satisfaction. And it's our own minds, and, and, it, and it is Satan, and it's temptation, and it's these fleshly desires that have tricked us into thinking that life apart from God will bring us satisfaction. And it never does. So he he's preaches, preaches this sermon, um, and then right before he gets arrested, we're going to turn to chapter four, he's going to get arrested. 2,000 more men come to Christ. I mean, that is quite the sermon. So because he's had compassion on this lame man, he's, he's healed him through the power of Christ. Uh, the man now is walking and leaping. 2,000 more men come to Christ. And then the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's the religious elite of that day, uh, do not like the fact that he is preaching Christ crucified. And so they arrest him. Uh, verse four, I'm sorry, chapter four, verses three and four. 2,000 people have come to Christ and he gets arrested. So uh, what they do, we see this, this same sort of thing with Jesus. They, they pull him in front of a council, right? So they got all of these religious elite and these, these temple uh, magistrates and they, they, they pull Peter and John before them and they got this council. It's kind of like being in court, right? They got this court and uh, I love, like this story is pretty powerful because the first thing that Peter does when they question him is he goes, so hold on, I'm on trial for healing someone? I'm on trial for an act of kindness and compassion? Just want, like, let that sink in there, brother. Y'all are here mad that I healed someone. And then he preaches to them. Sermon number two. And he preaches the polish off this thing. In verse 11, he says, he's preaching to the high priest, he's preaching to the religious elite. These people, these people have memorized the law. They have memorized the scripture. They know more about the Bible than you and I will ever know. And Peter, an uneducated fisherman, is preaching the polish off this. The fisherman. And he says this in verse 11, the stone that was rejected became the cornerstone. Now again, I'm half convinced that Peter doesn't even know what's coming out of his mouth sometimes. Like the Holy Spirit's just moving and he's talking and the Lord's leading because that phrase, that, that becomes actually a core doctrine of the Christian faith. It links all the way back to Psalm 118.22. And he, he's tying together prophecy from the Old Testament and establishing Christ's Supremacy with this reference. And it's just in the middle of a sermon that he's just spitting. He's just going. And he's just talking to these guys. And there are all these deep doctrinal implications. And I, Peter's doing this ad lib. They are essentially on trial with a group of people that can imprison them, beat them, put them in stocks, potentially kill them. And he's just preaching. And listen, this is the crazy part of the story. These people who do not believe in Jesus, and they're, they're pretty mad at Peter and John, they recognize the, the power that Peter and John have. They, they recognize something is not right. Like, fishermen don't do this. How in the world are it? Acts 4.13 says this. Now, they, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So I want you to think about this. When people see the Holy Spirit working in and through you, they recognize Jesus. When people see the Holy Spirit working through you, they see Jesus. And it gets, it, if that's bold, it gets better. Acts 4, 18 and 19, he finishes the sermon. They're pretty ticked off, but they recognize there's something here. 
And this is what happens in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. I mean, this is an answer. I just, this is an answer. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Yeah, listen, I hear you, and I know you could kill me, but God. And so they let him go, because they fear the crowd. They, do, they let him go. They, Peter and John looked at them and were like, no. I mean, it was one of those sorry, not sorry moments. Like, we're going to let you go as long as you don't do this. They're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're, we're totally going to go preach some more. And they let him go anyways. So they go back, if we follow them in the story in chapter four, they go back to their, their community group, they got a little group, people, their friends and family. They go back and they tell them what happened, tell them a story, and they're all praising God. And then there's something really important that happens in Acts 4, 28 through 31. So if you're, you've been following along, go all the way down to Acts 4, 28 through 31, this is what happens. So they're in their, their, their little group. They've been released from the, the court, the council. And here's what verse 28 says. They're praying right now to God. So they praised God. Now they're praying to God in their little community group around this little kitchen table. And it says this, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, what are they going to ask for? Keep us out of jail? Keep us from dying? Keep us from being beaten? Keep us from being persecuted? Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me just ask you to think about this for a second. Why in the world do Peter and John need to pray right after this and ask for God to help them to be bold? That's like the world's strongest man being like, I need to pray that God will make me strong. Wait, what? We just read two chapters of them doing ridiculously bold things. Healing a lame man who had been lame for his entire life preaching a sermon in the temple and 2,000 men coming to Christ, standing in front of the high council and preaching the gospel to them, and then when they told them not to, basically being like, not going to happen. They're really bold. So why are they praying for boldness? Because they're scared. Because they're scared. You, You know who Peter is, right? He's a coward. I don't say that lightly because I'm a coward. You remember Peter. You remember the story of Peter, right? Peter was the guy that was all talk and no walk. This is Peter. Remember when he was alone with Jesus and it was just the disciples? He's the guy. Here's what he said in Matthew 26, 32 through 35. This is what he said when Jesus is like, everyone's going to uh, fall away from me because it's going to get hard. This is Peter. Ready? Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this is very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then what happened? That dude ran away. In fact, it was just a little servant girl was the first person was like, weren't you with Jesus? He's like, no. It took nothing for him to give up. He's a coward. He was all talk and no walk. And now, all of a sudden, he's incredibly bold. He's standing in front of the entire high council preaching the gospel and basically telling him, I'm going to keep doing it. I don't care what you say because I'm going to listen to God. And then he runs back home and he's scared as can be. And he's like, hey, that wasn't, that wasn't me. That's the power of God. And if the power of God leaves and the Holy Spirit leaves and the Holy Spirit's not filling me up and transforming me to do that, then I wouldn't do it. I'd run away again. What is he admitting? This is the opposite guy. Did, did you see that? We went from a guy that was all talk and no walk to a guy that's all walk and no talk. Like, he, he, he knows. 
As soon as he gets back to a small group, I'm scared. Let's pray for boldness. I'm afraid that following God, that, that, that I'm going to trip up again. This, I, I want to say this is the same guy that it was in, in Matthew 26, but it's not the same guy. He's not the same anymore. Jesus changed him. Listen to me. I'm not the same anymore because I met Jesus and he changed me. And that doesn't mean I'm not a coward. It just means that he changed me. You're not the same anymore because you met Jesus and he changed you. I'm not who I was before. And Peter, Peter's not who he was before and you're not who you were before. Peter and John aren't coming back from this amazing thing and and this encounter and talking to their small group about what they accomplished. They're giving God the glory and they're praying for boldness over fear. This is what we we call vulnerability. They're being honest about the fact that they are scared even while and after God is using them to do miraculous things. When we do the things that we've talked about for the past three weeks, when we do the things that the early church were doing, when we, with a heart that is seeking God, gather together to devote ourselves to the fellowship and the apostles' teaching, when we gather together and begin to do life with one another as Christians, begin to open up our lives, begin to, to, to live lives with each other that are open up with all of the messiness and all the craziness, when we begin to live generous lives and begin to start giving things away and not assume that everything that God has put in our hand was for us to consume, but rather for us to steward and give back as we're spirit-led about where we see opportunities and need, when we begin to do those things, It creates this explosive transformation in our hearts and in the body of Christ. And we see three things that are produced in these two chapters that's happening in Peter and John. It's happening in the early disciples and in the people that are following Jesus. Three things. One, compassion. Two, boldness. And three, vulnerability. Compassion, boldness, and vulnerability are produced from the things that they're doing. We see compassion in Acts 2 as they care for one another well enough. Like, like the moment they realize there's need in the early church, they're, all, they're meeting those needs. They're compassionate to those needs. And in 4.4, as Peter sees the lame man and doesn't just walk by him because he's got somewhere to be, we see boldness, we see vulnerability. And I believe this is the fruit of the work when we wholeheartedly seek God in the assembly, at the kitchen table, and by living generous lives, you begin to see this produced both in our personal lives and in the heart of our church. In this, uh, by the end of Acts 2, and then all through Acts 3 and 4, we see reference after reference of believers having compassion on one another with their lives and their resources. Look at the end of chapter four real quick. End of chapter four says this, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. We know there were at least 5,000 men that had come to Christ already, at least. There wasn't a needy person among them. This is a very, very poor place. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They are learning, and God is producing overwhelming compassion in their lives, enough that they wouldn't even look at their own possessions as their own. That is a tremendous change in a very short period of time. Compassion. Boldness. The second thing, boldness. I mean, read these sermons from Peter. 
These are full throttle, no chill, like just over the top. There's no room for negotiation. I mean, he literally said, you killed the author of life to a bunch of devout Jews. Hey, that... Hey, that God that you come to the temple three times a day to pray for. Hey, that God that you give all of this this money and tithe and sacrifices for. Hey, this God that completely dominates every tradition that you have as a culture and every piece of identity that you have as a Jew and every piece of pride that you have as a Jew, you killed his son. Kind of bold. I'm just going to lay it out there. Subtlety was not really Peter's thing. And then he gets pulled in front of the council and he, he, he preaches to them, oh, you, we're on trial, great. Is it my turn to talk? Let me tell you about Jesus. The last time that Peter was pulled into even, even the smallest amount of risk for the faith, which was just a little servant girl asking him if he was with Jesus, he ran away. But the Holy Spirit's been working. If you've met Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are called to be bold for the faith. You're called to be bold for Christ. Listen to me, bold for Christ, not mean for Christ, not nasty for Christ, not not critical for Christ. Hear me, bold for Christ, bold. Bold and compassionate. Can you be bold and compassionate at the same time? Yes, that's what Peter's doing. That's what John's doing. That's what Jesus did. You can be both. I like to call it being aggressively gentle. I will track you down and love you. Aggressively gentle, but we're called to be bold for the faith. I've shared this before, but but one of the most uh, um, shameful moments of my entire life is I've been following uh, God for a long time, and I I think it was actually before I was ordained as a pastor, but I was teaching uh, a Sunday school class at my church, a Bible study, and I've been teaching for quite a while, and so I mean, I'm... I mean, I'm, I'm sold out for Jesus and I'm, I'm teaching and I'm in a small group and I'm praying and I'm tithing and I'm doing all this stuff. And I remember this guy that I had, um, a customer of mine that I'd worked with for like two years and we were going to lunch and he got in the car and my Bible was in the passenger seat. And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm just I'm prepping for a, a Bible study. And he was like, you're a Christian? And I was like, oh no. I was like, yeah. And he's like, I would have never thought that. (laughs) And I was like, okay. I have some problems that I have to deal with, clearly. And he's like, I mean that as a compliment. And I was like, "Mm, you bite. But it is not a compliment. We're called to be bold for Christ. And when we're following the Spirit, let me, just, let me just tell you, when you were following the Spirit, you are going to do some bold things for Jesus Christ. You're going to do bold things for Jesus Christ. I tell this story a lot to my friends that believe that God doesn't still move in really express ways. Um, but Russ Chambers, my, my really good friend and mentor, when he was preaching a message one night, uh, in the middle of the message, he felt God tell him, get on your hands and knees and crawl under this table and then get back up and go keep preaching your message. And he did. Can I just be honest? That sounds really stupid. But he did. He got on his hands and knees. He crawled on the thing. He got back up, kept preaching. And everyone in the ears is doing what you probably did. Oh, no. What's happening? It's a little weird. At the end of the, at the, end of the service, as everyone was leaving, somebody in the very back he'd never seen came up and said, okay. What do I have to do? And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, what do I have to do to be saved? And he, he's like, what, what's going on? He goes, I was driving by the church and, and, and been, I had all this stuff going on and I, I don't know, I just felt like I had to come in here and I don't know why. I'm a nightclub owner. I own two nightclubs and I do all this stuff and I think he actually owned a strip club too and he's like, I don't know, but I was sitting in the back and I was arguing with God. I was like, you're bleepity bleepity. If you're so bleepity real, you have that pastor get down on his hands and knees and crawl under that table right now. And he goes, and you did. 
So what do I gotta do? Got saved, sold all his nightclubs. If you're following the spirit, you're gonna do some stuff. I'm just warning you, it's wild. Welcome to the Christian faith. Welcome to spirit-led living. Welcome to being bold for Jesus. The third thing is vulnerability. Vulnerability. And we see that particularly in verse 29. If you're looking at uh, chapter four, verse 29, when Paul or Peter and John get back to their small group, they're praising God at what God did, but they're not taking credit for anything that God did. Peter has a real understanding that he's a coward and that he ran away when he had an opportunity to be bold for Christ and that the only thing that's keeping him anchored and bold and keeping his lips moving and speaking boldly in the temple, in the synagogue, in the council is the Holy Spirit. And he's not hiding from those previous failures at all. He's actually sitting in them full, with full knowledge that without the work of the Holy Spirit, he would be a coward again. He's inviting people into his life, and that requires vulnerability. Listen to me. If you're going to invite people into your life, it's going to require vulnerability. You can shout at people from the rooftops or the corners with a little placard all you want, but you're not going to connect with the, to them and with them without vulnerability. And if you really truly know the gospel. That means if you know the gospel, you know you have the answer. You have the answer to the world. You have the answer about sin and death and despair and depression and isolation. You have the answer. And no one cares that you know that until you can connect with them at a human level. We may impress people with our competency, but we connect to them through our vulnerability. D.T. Niles said, uh, I'm just one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find bread. That's the Christian faith. I'm just one loser that finally realized that I can't do it on my own, and I found Jesus, or he found me, and I'm just trying to tell everybody else, hey, if you're hungry, here's where the bread's at. But the moment you stop acting like a beggar and think that you earned it somehow and it wasn't the grace of God, it gets difficult to connect with people. Now, compassion, boldness, and vulnerability. Compassion, boldness, and vulnerability. These are the fruit. This is what we see produced in the early church, in Peter, in John. When we do, as a church, the internal work of the church, meeting together with a heart seeking God, engaged, expectant that God's going to move, when we open up our homes, when we begin to do life together, when we begin to live vulnerably, when we begin to live with our resources as an open hand. I, someone told me a story literally on the way in here. They're like, yeah, last week, you know, we're talking about giving. And so I wrote this check for $1,000 to God. I wrote it to him and I gave it away. And I was like, oh man, you know, I gave it away. And then in the mail, I got an envelope and I opened it up and there's a check to me that I, I had no idea was coming. It was $10,000. And he's like, can you believe it? And I was like, Yes. His point wasn't like, I'm so excited I got $10,000. His point was, did you see God move? Do you know how encouraging it is to realize that God is alive and he's real and he's moving and I've just been blind to it? When we do the internal work of the church, it will produce spiritual fruit in us that is undeniable and it's impossible to hide from the world. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were angry at what was going on recognized the hand of God on these men. A church that starts to do these things will begin to grow in compassion and in boldness and in vulnerability. And what, when, when the church begins to grow in those areas, it starts to have an impact on the world around it. And it, here, in this story, as this is happening from Acts 2 through Acts 4, we see the impact. We see the impact of compassion. We see the impact as they begin to lead generous lives. We see another 2,000 men come to Christ, right? There's an explosion of the gospel in Jerusalem, and men are coming to Christ all over town. They, they can't even deal with the size of the number of men and women that are coming to Christ in Jerusalem. This has been true historically throughout history for the last two millennia that when the church gets serious about seeking God in these ways, it begins to have this massive viral impact on the culture around them. Now, you may or may not know that because to be honest with you, our history books have changed over the years to the point where you're now taught a secular version of history that the historical impact of Christianity was really negative. 
So there's sort of this secular backlash to the faith that would tell you that Christianity is responsible for all of the woes of the world. It's become increasingly popular over the centuries to blame the church for every ill in society. The church is repressive. The church is hypocritical. The church is greedy or sexist or bigoted. In a debate with Alistair McGrath, uh, Christopher Hitchens summed up the conclusion this way. I can't believe there is a thinking person here who doesn't realize that our species would begin to grow to something like its full height if it emancipated itself from this sinister, childish, religious nonsense. The secular world would tell you that the faith in Christ is just holding you back. And that all it's done is have a negative impact on cultures around us. But that's actually not accurate at all. Now, certainly, there have been dark times in the church. There have been times where sinful men have used the church for unrighteous things. That is absolutely true. And we should acknowledge that over the years, imperfect, messy people have used the Bible for their own personal interests, and they have spurned being Christ-like to the world. And often, they've done so by selectively reading portions of the Bible that support them. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Because historically, culture has been impacted by the church in such a positive way that we, we couldn't even get to where we are in modern times without the impact of the church. Listen to Yale professor Jaroslav Pelikan. He says this. He remarks that Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? In his book, The Victory of Reason, Stark answers that question. Had the followers of Jesus remained an obscure Jewish sect, most of the world, most would not have learned to read, and the rest of you would be reading from hand-copied scrolls. Without a theology committed to reason, progress, and moral equity, today the entire world would be about where non-European societies were in 1800. It would be, Stark says, a world with many astrologers and alchemists, but no scientists. A world of despots lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys, and pianos. A world where most infants do not live to the age of five and many women die in childbirth. The modern world arose only in Christian societies, not in Islam, not in Asia, not in secular society. At the turn of the 19th century, the southern portion of the African continent was only 3% Christian. Today, 63% of the population. is Christian, increasing by 34,000 new members every day. In Hindu India, 14 million of the 140 million members of the untouchable caste have become Christians. More people in the Islamic world have come to Christ in the last 25 years than the entire history of Christian missions combined. In Islamic Indonesia, the percentage of Christians is now so high, somewhere around 15%, that the number of megachurches is growing so quickly that the Muslim government will no longer print statistics. Back in 1950, there were only a handful of evangelical Christians in Brazil. Today, more than one-fifth of the population self-identifies as Protestant. The Catholic Church in Brazil has experienced a profound revival, too, going from 50 million adherents in 1950 to more than 134 million today. When the church gets serious about seeking God through the assembly of the saints, the expectancy of the saints, through gathering around kitchen tables and being involved in each other's life and being generous, the impact of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us is unparalleled in human history. God changes nation states through the church, through you and I. Now, I just want you to, okay, I'm gonna do the Jessica Michael thing. Close your eyes. I want you to dream for just a minute what Bakersfield would look like as churches in Bakersfield begin to get serious about the work of God, serious about seeking God in these ways, and God begins to produce that in you and I and in our church and in other churches, what does Bakersfield look like? Imagine a Bakersfield where all the strip clubs have to close because no one wants to go. Imagine a Bakersfield where travel, baseball, and other sports teams stop scheduling your kids on a Sunday morning because no one will sign up. Imagine a city where fentanyl use wanes and stops because people aren't reaching for satisfaction in things other than Jesus. 
Imagine this church meeting the needs of the poor, building halfway houses, building schools, filling the public schools with res owners that are so passionate about Jesus that if you're a troubled kid, no matter what school you go to, you run into another one of us. Imagine if God could take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, what he can do when this church commits ourselves to his work and our hearts to seeking him. Just imagine, just imagine. I said if I got to 10.10 and I hadn't gotten to Acts 5, I wasn't gonna do it, but I lied. Okay. All of this is happening. All of this impact is happening. All of this, I mean, it, it, like, you can't, it's happening so fast in such a wild fashion and it's so amazing and there's so many miracles going on. That, like, you, people can't comprehend what happens and then we get this crazy warning about what not to do and it's in Acts 5.1. I'm not gonna read it. You can read it later in your small group. Let me just say that when you're reading Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4, you kind of see everything and then you read Acts 5 and you're like, what just happened? There's two people in the church named Ananias and Sapphira. And they think that if I just check the boxes, regardless of a heart that seeks God, it'll be enough. And so what God does is he, he warns the church really early that lukewarm Christianity has no place with him. God doesn't want half your heart, he wants the whole thing. God is a jealous God. He's not okay sharing you with other things. And so they do this weird thing where they sell some property and instead of uh, just giving some of it or all of it to the church, they lie and say, hey, we're giving the whole amount even though they really didn't because they wanna look righteous. And God kills them. It's a nutty story, okay? Like, it's weird. No one that I know of has ever dropped off their offering in the offering bucket and fell dead. But there's a lesson here that it's not about a robotic religious set of things that you do. It's actually about a heart seeking God and doing certain things by wanting more of him that matters and everything else is not just fake, it it, it is offensive to God. God would say about your lukewarm Christianity, I spit you out of my mouth. In fact, he'd say, I'd rather you just be cold to me then pretend you love me, but don't really. And he drops them dead. And then people carry them out of the building and bury them. Like, do you realize that the first volunteers in the church's job was carrying corpses, right? That's a weird, like if you sign up, you're like, I'll do anything. I I didn't think I was carrying bodies out. I promise you if you sign up to serve here, no bodies. No bodies, lots of things to do, maybe even mopping floors, but no bodies, okay? It's a, it's a wild story, but it speaks to the heart of what's happening in this early church is that it's about your heart, it's not about what it looks like. It's not about feeling righteous. It's not about looking righteous. It's about seeking Christ. And early on, God sends this message that, that if you want fake it till you make it, it's not going to work. And, and he, he, he drops them dead, and it says great fear comes over the church. What's that great fear? That they're going to die? No. The great fear is that you don't mess around with God because he knows your heart, and he wants your heart. We're gonna do an altar call right now, and um, I'm just gonna give you an opportunity to do a couple things. And uh, here's what I'd like you to do as we sing, and, and uh, we're gonna have our prayer team up here, and we want an opportunity to pray for anybody that's in need of anything. But man, I, I would love if you'd spend that time, if, if you're not in need of prayer, if you don't wanna come and, and talk to us for various reasons, I'd love if you'd spend that time really talking to the Lord about what, what it would look like, if he would just give you a glimpse of what it would look like if the word of God began to soak into us so deeply, transform us so deeply that all of us cowards became bold. If us greedy people became generous. If us real private, isolated people became so vulnerable and interconnected to one another that we were all up in each other's business. 
What would the impact of that look like, not just here, all around us in our neighborhoods? And I just, I'm gonna pray, and, and I want you to ask God, just give you a glimpse of that. Like if, if you've ever, I've had times where God's just given me these little glimpses of what it would look like if his word went forth that way, and it is so encouraging to understand that there's no little limit to the work of God and how God can do those things. And I want to see it. Like, I, I want to be part of it. I don't want to be, I just want to see it. I want to, I want to, when they talk about revivals in history where, where God is moving in such a powerful fashion that it's like this undeniable thing that it gets to all of the areas of town. It gets to, it gets to the least of the, it gets to the worst area of town. Then all the worst area of town becomes the best area of town. And I want to see that happen. I want to watch God move. Otherwise, I feel like I'm, I'm wasting away. The last thing that I want to do is just run a little bubble of a church that closes the doors to everyone on the outside so that the darkness can't get in. I, the light is meant to go forth into the darkness, and the darkness cannot withstand it. What does that look like in our town? What does that look like in our city? What does that look like in our world? And so we're going to pray. Uh, if you are in need of prayer, if you have prayer requests, if you're sick, if you're hurting, if you're, we want you to come and let our elders and our prayer team pray over you, as the Bible would tell us to do. If, if you have never put a personal faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm reading this, and you're like, man, all that sounds great, but I don't even know him, we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to put a saving faith in Jesus and move forward. What, a, what does the next step look like as we put our faith in Christ? How do I follow God in this way? We'd love to talk to you. I'm gonna pray for us and then you move as the Lord leads. Father God, we thank you for the church. We thank you for all of the kingdom work and kingdom impact that you have done through churches historically, God, through their messiness and their imperfection. God, we desire to be a people that knows you more. God, my desire is that we as a congregation learn to love you so tremendously that we grow in compassion, that we grow in generosity, that we grow in boldness, God. I thank you so much for this church in this town right now. And God, my heart's desire is to see the impact of the gospel all over this city, we want the privilege of being used by you to make an impact, to see generations changed, to see broken marriages saved, to see generational sin changed, to see, God, families that are just distraught and torn apart, put back together again by the grace of Christ. Gotta thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads you. We want to pray.